Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I am your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thank you to our generous underwriters on Sharper Iron, the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information and Luther Classical College, a college for Lutherans by Lutherans opening in fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Monday, September 5th, we're studying Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 to 22. Moses tells Israel of a coming prophet like him, one whom the Lord will raise up, one to whom the people must listen. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Nate Hill. Pastor Hill serves at St. Michael's Lutheran Church in Winchester, Texas. He's also helping with the Lutheran Church plant, Epiphany Lutheran Church in Bastrop, Texas. Pastor Hill, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Good morning. Glad I can be with you for this daily dose of Deuteronomy today. Wow. Well done. I, I can't. I have nothing. So <laughs> well done with the alliteration. Deuteronomy, what should we know leading up to this text? Well, today's text is going to be a little different than what we've been looking into recently, because as we find ourselves near the midpoint of the book of Deuteronomy, we've been in the midst of the section that outlines the particularities and stipulations of the covenant that God made with Israel at Sinai. And um, now we have this um, nice break, so to speak, from those particularities where we have a wonderful promise from God that there will be a line of prophets that will come, of course, that way Israel will not ever be without his word, but that one prophet will come in particular who will be quote unquote, like Moses and will find uh, greater than Moses, even with the hindsight that we have today and that they should be looking for him to come and be recognizing his voice when he does arrive. Of course, that great prophet to come is our Lord and savior, Jesus Christ. And Martin Luther actually identified the text that we have today as the chief passage in the whole of the book of Deuteronomy. So uh, just a wonderful breaking through of, of a hopeful prophecy looking forward to the coming of Christ in the midst of a clear articulation of the particularities of the law. This is a very important text within the book of Deuteronomy, especially for, for New Testament Christians. We studied part of it, at least, in a previous series on Sharper Iron when we were looking at Old Testament Advent texts. Parts of this text show up in Advent because, as you mentioned, this does point us to our Savior, Jesus Christ. One thing to note, I think, about the context that Professor Harstad in his commentary makes, and I've mentioned this on previous shows, is that within this section of Deuteronomy, there is made mention of the three major offices that are found in Old Testament Israel. We looked at kings previously at the end of chapter 17. We've just talked about priests and Levites. And today, as you said, we get the prophet. That prophet from God does stand in contrast to those abominations that we looked at in the previous text in Deuteronomy 18 verses 9 through 14. So there is some some context that does connect. But as you said, uh, a very clear prophecy of Christ, I think probably the clearest one in the book. There's certainly plenty of opportunity to see Christ in Deuteronomy. But as, as Martin Luther points out, this is really this is really the, the big deal. Absolutely. So breath of fresh air. let's go ahead and take a look at this text. This is Deuteronomy 18, 
verses 15 to 22. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, or see this great fire any more, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, They are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. It's our text for today, Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 to 22. So, Pastor Hill, I, I think if I understood you correctly, in this text, there's really two things going on. There is one prophet, one great prophet spoken of, but there's also a line of prophets that's established here. How do you want to how do you want to approach this text? Yeah, the first section that we've read, basically verses 15 through 20, pertain to the prophet like Moses, which is Christ. And we're, in a sense, beginning with the end in mind when we talk about the fact that God will send prophets who will come and give his word to the people. We begin with the culmination of all of that, that all of the prophets are ultimately aimed at, which is the coming of the true word of God in the flesh. And then uh, the last section, those last few verses do speak uh, and presuppose this office of Old Testament prophet and help the uh, hearers understand how they might discern between what's a legitimate prophet of the Lord, what message they bring, as opposed to uh, understanding who is falsely claiming that sort of prophetic mantle for their own purposes. So we will see the office of prophet over and over again within the Old Testament. Moses, of course, is not the first prophet. Abraham at one point is called a prophet, and other scriptures speak of Noah as a prophet as well. Uh, maybe we should just start by defining that word. What is a prophet, biblically speaking? Well, a prophet's main job is one who brings a message from the Lord to his people. We often think of a prophecy only as a prediction, but that's not necessarily the case. A prophet is making clear God's will, God's word to the people. Sometimes he's speaking about what's going to take place in the future, but sometimes he's clearly calling to account um, sin amongst God's people, especially later on, as we'll see in the Old Testament, the sins of the kings and those who should be held to high account. Um, but their job is to make known the word of the Lord. And that's, of course, why this kind of prophetic word of hear the word of the Lord or the word of the Lord came to the prophet. Their job is to be God's mouthpiece on the face of the earth during the Old Testament time. So a prophet speaks for the Lord to the people. One of the things that we see in both that description that you gave and in this text, then, is the prophet serves in a mediatorial role. I think I used that adjective correctly. He's the mediator who stands between God and the people. God speaks to the prophet. The prophet speaks then to the people. Because to hear the word of the Lord directly, Israel's experienced that, and it wasn't the best experience for them. Exactly. So the entire context of why this great prophet like Moses must come is mentioned here in the context of what God did in meeting with his people at Horeb. 
So the idea is that the people did not want to hear the voice of the Lord, their God at Horeb, because they couldn't stand it in their sin. Um, the righteousness of God, his purity, his, his wonder and his majesty are something that we as humans cannot stand to be in the presence of on our own. And that's a concept I think we've mainly lost in modern day Christianity even. I mean, definitely in the modern worldview of just people out there, but even within Christian circles, we, um, well, we domesticate God to some extent. We bring him down a notch or two when we really should recognize that um, his his glory is so far above what we can even bear to behold. It's it's multiple times different and, and multiplied of, of what it would be like to stare into the sun. Mm-hmm. So that helps us to understand just a principle throughout all of scripture where we we can only be in God's presence if we are no longer found in our sin. And it helps us understand salvation in Christ. It helps us understand heaven and hell and understanding just who God is in his glory will help unlock some of those things that can be troubling for people to, to really grasp. It's striking that in this text in verse 17, the Lord responds to this request from the people that they're right in asking for this mediator. And we saw this previously in the book of Deuteronomy in Deuteronomy chapter five, after Moses recounted the giving of the Decalogue, then he recounted this conversation in greater detail. And there again, the Lord, he responds to this request for a mediator saying they are right. And I mean, he quite commends them. In fact, he even says, oh, that they had such a mind always to fear me and keep all my commandments. So this desire for a mediator someone to speak the Lord's word to the people in between the Lord and his people. This is a good thing. And I think perhaps maybe the reason sometimes it's lost on us is because that mediator has come. Jesus has come, but you, you will hear, and maybe, I don't know if you had something different in mind, but as you were talking, what I was thinking is occasionally hear Christians say something to the effect of, well, you know, I don't need a pastor because it's just me and Jesus, or right. I can go to God directly. So I don't really need a pastor to, to explain his word or, or to do the, the things that God has given pastors to do. And, and texts like these, while they certainly point us to Jesus and we recognize him as that mediator, I think it also is a reminder of, of why God has, you know, still have the pastoral office for us as well. Right. It's not so much that we need to mediate God's holiness and protect the people from it. It's more so that the pastoral ministry is there in this prophetic vein, so to speak. I mean, even when you go to an ordination or an installation, you'll notice in our hymnody, um, the prophetic office is associated in a sense, in a different sense with the pastoral ministry, because it is the pastoral ministry that is constantly bearing the word of God and putting it in front of the people. So the way that a pastor mediates, so to speak, between God and man is not in a, a really like a functional necessity. It's um, given as someone who is cons- constantly putting the grace of God before the person and, and reminding them of the grace of God in Christ. In fact, delivering the grace of God in Christ to them through the sacraments that um, allows us to now understand that we do have a relationship of God, not as slaves, but as sons, um, not as enemies of God, but as friends. So yeah, there's a nugget of truth in what people say. We don't need quote unquote, a pastor to be the mediator in in the same way, but the pastoral office is graciously given to deliver 
uh, the gracious gifts that God would have us receive in Christ. Yes, that's right. To, to think of, yeah, we cannot reject the gifts that God wants us to have through the pastoral office saying the, the types of things that we're talking about. We, we need the pastoral office. God gives it to us graciously so that his word may be delivered to us. Now, we're still talking here about this prophet like Moses. The Lord's going to raise him up. Uh, well, let's, I, we skipped over this, but let's, let's talk briefly about he's going to be one from your brother. He's he's an Israelite. Why is that significant? Well, it's significant in the sense that, well, Moses was from amongst their brothers as well. So Moses is lifted up as one familiar to them. I mean, his cousins are in the crowd, right, at, mm. at Sinai. Um, and that's a good thing and a bad thing. On the one hand, it's good because he's familiar and there is a relationship of trust there, but it's a bad thing in the fact that at some point you can just say, hey, that's just my cousin. That's, that's just uh, the common person that we're used to. He's going to come from amongst the brothers, and this is going to become clear later on in many other prophecies of the Old Testament, that he would need to come uh, from the line of David, uh, from the shoot of Jesse, all these kinds of things that the other scriptures say. But the promise is that he's not going to be interloping from outside of the religious community. He's not going to come in the name of another God. He's going to come in the name of Yahweh, the one true God, who has made a covenant with Moses at Sinai. And the message that this prophet like Uh, Moses will bring is one that will be continuous with the word that the Lord has already delivered, a further, clearer revelation of it, but not a new thing in the sense that it's foreign to the promises that have already been given by Moses. And we saw this with the kings as well previously in Deuteronomy 17. When they get a king, they are not to put a foreigner over them. They are to have one of their brothers. And we talked about with that text that part of the concern there is is likely this has to be an Israelite, one who worships the true God, not someone who doesn't. So something similar here when it comes to this prophet and the way that the Lord speaks of him, his word, you got to listen to it. You don't get the choice to say, well, that's not for me. Absolutely. And this was difficult for Jesus hearers and those who were um, contemplating Christ after his ascension from a position of a Jewish faith. We're studying Hebrews in our Bible study on Sunday morning at St. Michael's, and Hebrews is coming up in the lectionary right now. And the theme really that I get out of Hebrews, to put it in a sentence or two, is that the author of the Hebrews is pleading with his own people not to miss what God has given them, a covenant that is new and greater than the old, a prophet that is greater than Moses, not just like Moses. Hebrews 3 really unlocks this for us, this comparison between Jesus and Moses. I'd commend that to to our listeners' Mm -hmm. reading. But the idea is that um, the Hebrews, they had a hard time recognizing this because the book of Hebrews was written at the time that the temple is still standing. And they, they so cherished the old ways that they had a hard time recognizing the one from their midst who who had come up there. But, um, The idea is that this prophet will come and we must listen to him and not just hold on to the old ways that Moses is giving here. Uh, This Sinai covenant was meant for a time to be a guardian over God's people until the gospel would come and be fully revealed in Christ. Hmm. So we, all right, just to review then what's been spoken about this prophet, he is like Moses. He's from among the brothers. He is the one to whom the people must listen. He is the one who is the mediator of God's word. He speaks what God has spoken to the people. Now, this is fulfilled completely, finally in Christ. 
I do think it's striking that when you look at the true prophets throughout the Old Testament, many of them fulfill these things, at least in part. You see these these things. I mean, let's talk a little bit about that before we see the full fulfillment in Christ. Right. So obviously uh, the fulfillment is in Christ, as you have said, but there are echoes of fulfillment, so to speak, in the true prophets that come before him. Which gets us to this idea of, of how prophecy works in the Old Testament related to the New, and really this idea of typology, which I imagine you know your hearers are becoming more and more familiar with. But the idea is that the full uh, culmination of this prophecy will be in Christ, but those will come before him who will be an image ahead of time, uh, a, a little breaking through of, of that promise that Christ will come in in a small way before before the fulfillment finally comes in its fullness. I think the closest thing that we have as an analog to this today is the prophecies of what will arise before the end in the last day, right? There's going to be wars, rumors of wars, uh, increasing trouble, not increasing peace. And we see echoes of that manifesting themselves in our own day. Well, do I know, uh, and we'll get into this later, I suppose, maybe after the break, right. but do I know for sure that that means the Lord's coming next week? No, but I mean, I know it, the echoes are there showing forth that the fullness of it will come someday. So the the prophets that come between Moses and Jesus, that come in the true word of God, are coming really in a sense Christologically, or at least with a Christological message in their preaching, pointing forward to the one who will give the full revelation in the flesh, not just mediated in the sense of God through a man, but God and man together in one. Right, right. And and kind of some of the things that I have in mind are, especially with the prophet being like Moses and needing to listen to him, speaking God's word faithfully to the people, you can see within the lives of many Old Testament prophets, events in the life of Moses repeated in some way, shape, or form. For example, we will see in the book of Joshua, which is what we're going to pick up next on Sharper Iron, we're going to see Joshua lead the people through the Jordan River. Moses did something kind of like that with the Red Sea. And mm-hmm. you, you can see this over and over again in, in the prophets of the Old Testament. Yeah, that's true. That does. There are these echoes of what Moses had done, but really no one uh, paces along with Moses' life or echoes Moses' life quite as closely as Jesus does. And there are many, many connections there. Well, so let's let's start making those connections then, because as, as we've said, this is speaking about Jesus prophetically. He is the prophet like Moses and even greater than Moses, as the New Testament tells us. So give us some of the connections. How does this text, how do we see this pointing to Christ? Well, um, the first thing I guess we would see between Jesus and Moses' life is Moses' original origin story, right? The fact that Moses is uh, hidden away because Pharaoh is going to kill the innocent children in Egypt. Well, of course, the same thing is happening with uh, the slaughter of the innocents by Herod in the days of Jesus. So we've got a real connection there. Um, Moses then flees his native land because of Pharaoh's persecution. And of course, Christ has to flee because of Herod's persecution. Where does he flee to Egypt? And a, a real connection there as well. Um they both get to return after the death of the evil king who is trying to um, clamp down on God's people. We see Moses fasting 40 days before he delivers God's word to the people. Jesus fasting 40 days uh, before he begins to preach. 
And um, then we have these mountaintop experiences as well. We have Moses at Sinai and we have Jesus at the Mount of Transfiguration. Uh, again, what, what covers the mountain in each, in each place? A, a cloud signifying the true presence of God being there. The Red Sea, of course, is divided by Moses. We don't see Christ divide the sea, but he certainly walks upon it, calms the storm, and um, a number of other connections like that. What this really gets us to is the fact that in Jesus' life, we see the life of ancient Israel reduced down to one man, so to speak. This concept of Israel reduced to one means that when we look at Jesus, we see the entire history of Israel played out in a sense, in his movements and his actions, which would have communicated to the people that that he is taking upon himself the entire history of Israel and, and accomplishing the fulfillment of all of Israel's history in what he does in his life and death and resurrection. I want to key in on, on the mountain of transfiguration, which you brought up as a, a similarity in the lives of Moses and Jesus, but also where we hear the father's voice speak very significant words that relate to this text at both Jesus baptism and his transfiguration. The father's voice speaks. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. It is at the mountain of transfiguration where the father's voice adds, listen Listen to him. him. And so from the father's own voice, we hear that Jesus is identified as this prophet, the one to whom you must listen. That's a pretty significant new Testament reminder, even within, you know, the ministry of, of Jesus and John the Baptist before him in John chapter one, one of the questions that John the Baptist is asked is, are you the prophet? And most English translations will capitalize that people were looking for this prophet of Deuteronomy 18, They thought maybe John was the guy. John, of course, says, no, I'm not. And then Jesus, later when he asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? One of the things they say is, well, some people think you're a a prophet. They didn't have the full conception of it. But you see how over and over again in the New Testament, this is a very significant text for identifying who Jesus is as the fulfillment of, of this passage. And when we think of the history of prophecy as well, there is that time between the Testaments where the prophets cease to speak Mm. for hundreds of years. The people were were dying to hear the voice of the Lord again brought to them by a prophet. Um, And we understand that that silence is given before the great prophet comes. That way we would be sitting on the edge of our seat waiting to hear from him and take his word to heart. That his voice wouldn't be lost amongst the cacophony of, of other prophets surrounding him but that it would be one additional sign that this is the one and unfortunately those who failed to recognize him are still looking for that one that's going to be like moses and their time of silence from the lord has in their perception anyway extended for millennia uh, whereas we know that that the lord has spoken has sent that prophet um, and has opened to us a new covenant by which we can access God, not by means of law, but by means of gospel and grace. You mentioned the book of Hebrews previously, and Hebrews chapter 3, as you said, is, is definitely the place to look where that writer of Hebrews makes that very clear connection about Moses being faithful as a servant, Jesus being faithful as the builder, I think is the language that he uses there, which is another a good point to make that this prophet like Moses is not only they did some of the same things in their life, but Jesus is faithful like Moses was. Moses heard the word of the Lord and spoke it faithfully. 
Jesus, he emphasizes this several times. I'm thinking particularly of the gospel of John, where he says, everything that the father has spoken to me, I'm speaking to you. So that faithfulness is a part of it. Mm -hmm. And, and then for us, you know, when we think about how Deuteronomy 18, then how we take it, you know, this matter of listening to Jesus is the key. And and when you brought up Hebrews, I had never really connected the very beginning of Hebrews with this passage, but I think there is a connection that very first two verses of that book long ago at many times. And in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. And there, I mean, you know, I don't know that it's necessarily only based on Deuteronomy 18, but I, I hear echoes of it that in Jesus, we have the final prophet to whom you must listen. It's not in these many ways anymore. If you want to know what God says, listen to his son. That's where you'll hear his word. Absolutely. And one of the things I love about Hebrews is Hebrews pretty well says it. You know, I mean, a lot of times you need a whole lot of exposition to really tease out of a text, you know, the meaning. Yeah. But so much of Hebrews is just very straight and to the point and speaks for itself as we read it. And and in making this connection between Jesus as the prophet like Moses, yet even greater, I mean, if it's okay with you, I think we might want to actually read through Hebrews 3, these first opening verses there. Go ahead. Because the author just makes the point so clearly. He says, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession, who is faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast to our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Mm. Yeah, the, some, some consider Hebrews to be one long sermon, and so to have that clearly stated like that is, is very helpful. And I appreciate you reading it because I had a couple things mixed up, that Moses has the glory of the house. Jesus is the builder. Moses is a servant. Christ is the son. Again, we, we see how in Christ we have the fulfillment of Deuteronomy 18, even have some, some high priest language, which of course the writer of Hebrews brings out later. And, and all of it is pointing to Jesus as the fulfillment of the old Testament. The point I think he's making, if you listened to Moses, then you ought to listen to Christ because Moses listened to Christ. Moses preached of Christ. He's here hold on to to Christ, not not to Moses without Christ. Absolutely. It's the entire thread that runs through the Old Testament is that the Old Covenant does not exist in and of itself for itself. It exists to point us forward to what is new in Christ and what is revealed in his, his coming. So we are going to keep looking at Deuteronomy 18 here on Sharper Iron. We need to take our break. You're listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. We're talking to Pastor Nate Hill this morning. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. 
Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Monday, September 5th. We're studying Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 to 22 with Pastor Nate Hill. He serves at St. Michael's Lutheran Church in Winchester, Texas. He is also helping with the church plant Epiphany Lutheran Church in Bastrop, Texas. Pastor Hill, prior to the break, we were talking about Jesus as the prophet like Moses from among your brothers. We could have spent all the time looking at Jesus' genealogy, I suppose. But there, there is a reason why the genealogy of Jesus is important. He is one from among the brothers of Israel. He is the one to whom we must listen. We must listen to Jesus. The Father's voice makes that point on the Mount of Transfiguration. Now, as, as we keep looking at this text, not only do we have the prophet to whom we must listen, ultimately Jesus standing in that line of the Old Testament prophets, but there are also words here concerning how the people will know who's the authentic prophet and who's not. And again, this certainly applies to Jesus, but it also applies to the Old Testament prophets as well. What does Moses have to say here about putting prophets to the test? Right. Moses recognizes that there will be an Old Testament office of prophet. And the purpose of that in context, of course, is that Moses knows he's not going into the promised land. Uh, there will be much that uh, the people need to be encouraged and reminded of in the in the word of the Lord. So he promises the word will be among them and that they should have attentive ears to it and uh, a discerning mind as to whether someone is coming truly in the word of the Lord or whether they are coming in a way that's going to... Um, cause them some kind of material increase in their own lives. Because uh, I think as pastors, we recognize there's a great trust that people uh, put in pastors as bearers of God's word and a trust that uh, need not be um, abused in any particular way. Um, So Moses wants the people to be wise, and we should actually, by the way, be training our congregations to be wise in this same way, to discern truth from error, God's word from man's word. So um, as, as he teaches them, he's going to give them a way to test someone who is supposedly a prophet. And the result of the test is to figure out if a word that a prophet speaks is not the word of the Lord. And we'll, we'll talk a little more about that in a minute because it gets a little confusing. But the, the test starts out like this. First off, Moses says that you have to ask in whose name is the prophet speaking? There are many people who would come speaking in the names of the Canaanite false gods who might be compelling, might be interesting to listen to, might be bringing a message that one would wish were true. Um, But Moses says that if they are not speaking in the name of Yahweh, then we are allowed, the people are allowed to immediately uh, and, and right away discount that word of this prophet. And I love this phrase and not be afraid, Mm, Yeah, not be afraid of the word that this um, prophet has spoken because a lot of prophecy and and people getting uh, tied up in this, even today, I think it's built around fear, right? Mm -hmm. If someone claims to have a connection to God and that person claims thing X is going to happen. um, Well, we wouldn't want to not listen if it really were the word of the Lord. And and there's a lot of uncertainty and fear. So we'll, we'll tease that out a little bit, but if it's not coming in the name of the one true God, you know, from, from the outset, not to listen. The second part of the test is if the prophet is speaking in the name of Yahweh, but his word does not come to pass or come true. And I think we would read word here as predictions um, in the sense that he would be saying something is going to happen and it doesn't. If it does not come to pass, then you can disregard this fake prophet and not be afraid of him or his word. So, all right, so far, so good. Now we get to the third part. 
that we have to ask is if the prophet passes both tests, if he's speaking in the name of Yahweh and he predicts something and it comes to pass, well then, you do not know that the Lord has not spoken this word. Now, that's an intentional double negative, right? Yeah. You don't know for a fact that it's not the Lord's word that, that prophet's speaking. But then the question is, do you know for a fact because he predicted one thing that everything else he says is going to be true? And I think the wise um, individual would say, no, that's not exactly what he's saying here. The question is not how do you know if what the prophet says is true? It's how do you yeah. know if what a supposed prophet says is not true and can be disregarded? Yeah, no, that, that's a very good point. In, in verse 21 of the text, the specific question is, how may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? So it, it is not a test to see if it is a word the Lord has spoken. It's to see if the Lord has not spoken it. And so that test is, did it happen? If it didn't happen, the Lord didn't speak it. The question is not being asked, did the Lord say it? If it happened, then yes, the Lord spoke it. That's not the case. And and in fact, what's what's striking is back in Deuteronomy 13, one of the things that Moses pointed out was sometimes a false prophet comes along and gives a sign or wonder that actually does come to pass. And, and there the test is, is he speaking in the name of the Lord or not? And so, right, when someone comes along and speaks in the name of the Lord, and what they say happens, that doesn't necessarily mean, right? That's not the conclusion to be drawn here, that that prophet is definitely from the Lord. Because what, I mean, the what's the saying? A, a broken clock is right twice a day or something like yep, that? Yep. Something like that could happen in the case of the false prophet. So lots of lots of stuff to, to tease out here. Uh, one thing I, I want to talk a little bit, and it... It was sparked in my mind by what you said about the trust that is there in the pastoral office. When people see a man standing in the pulpit, they are expecting him to speak the truth because he's up there speaking in the name of God. And and that really reminded me of, of what I tried to communicate in catechism class, both to youth and adults, that when it comes to the second commandment, this is a, a huge part of what it means to either use the Lord's name correctly or to misuse it is when you speak in his name, you better be speaking truth. And and what you said about people trusting their pastors, but that especially for pastors, the second commandment really ought to put a little bit of the fear of God into us so that we don't misuse the name of the Lord by speaking falsely in his name. Exactly. Yeah. A carefulness in speech, especially from the pulpit is very important. I think the phrase that was used at the seminary, of course, is always preach the word. Another way that it was taught was in preaching, preach the text, not the blank space between the lines of the text. You know, again, uh, a sermon is not an exercise in an individual man's imagination about the text, but it's an exposition of the word of God, an explanation of it, and an application of it for the good of his hearers. So I think that's that's really the connection in our modern world is we know in a different way whether what is being taught is is true or false. And we can talk about that for, for certain in a moment. Um, it was just different at the time of, of the writing of Deuteronomy because, in a sense, God was revealing his word immediately without the written word, at, at least at first, right? Because the word of the Lord had to come uh, in into the prophet and be spoken verbally first, and they had to recognize it as true in that case. They didn't have the 
um, luxury that we have today of testing a, a teaching based upon the Bible that they carry around with them everywhere. Um, so it, it was it was a little more of a, I don't want to say a subjective thing, but a, a more a situation that required more spiritual discernment. Well, you know, Moses is told to write these things down when it comes, I, I believe it's later in the book of Deuteronomy mm-hmm. where he is told to write these things down. And, and previously in chapter 17, the king was told that he needs to make a copy of the book of Deuteronomy and keep it there. So they do have the written word, perhaps again, not collected like, you know, you and I have our Lutheran study Bibles in front of us. And so perhaps not in that same way, but that written word is there for them to look at and for say like priests to make use of. And for those who are charged with caring for Israel in this way to make use of. Uh, But, but again, the, the fact that these things are spoken in the Lord's name, uh, we want to understand that in a broader sense than just, say, invoking the name of the Lord. Such Absolutely. That, right, I mean, and the example that came to my mind for the people of the Old Testament would be what happened at the, with the golden calf because they, they called the golden calf Yahweh. Right. Aaron even uses that name. And that's so, but what happened there was very clearly idolatry. So to invoke the name of the Lord, to speak truly in the name of the Lord is more than to get his name right but it is to speak truly about him as he has revealed himself in the totality of his word, which again is being revealed through the prophets now. And for us, we look to the pages of Holy scripture. So talk more about this. How do we put these things to the test using the word of God? Yeah. So for us in our modern day, of course we have all of the new Testament evidence as well that, that urges us to understand that the Lord is not going to speak in a way that is contrary to the word that has been revealed to us. So we as modern day Christians need to recognize that this warning against false prophets should be heard in our ears as a warning maybe against false teachers Mm -hmm. as well. Um, Now, false teaching can come for a variety of reasons. It can come out of ignorance. It can come out of manipulation. It can come for, for personal gain. But we ought to be on the lookout, not just against this person who says, I know the day that Christ is going to return. Um, sell all your possessions and get on this bus with me. Um, it should also be uh, something that we're looking out for, even within the bounds of of churches, that we would we would look for what might be a false and misleading teaching, even though that church may very well be recognizing the name of God, the name of Jesus um, accurately. So um, we we test the the preaching, the message of of the word that's given against the word that has been revealed to us in the scriptures and and thereby we recognize what is good sound teaching and sound doctrine um, and what our, our true hope is. St. John in his first epistle gives one of the tests that always comes to my mind in first John four, verse two, he says, by this, you know, the spirit of God, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And then in verse three, every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. So there's a, a very clear test for mm-hmm. us as Christians. Like what you said about false prophets in the Old Testament being comparable to false teachers in the New Testament is right on. And it's very striking how often any of the apostles in their epistles speak against false teachers and the need to be wary of them. And and you even said I think earlier about the hearers, those who listen to a preacher on a Sunday morning, needing to test what is being said. And we as pastors should teach them how to do that. So I maybe how, how does that happen 
in a way that that does both things that Moses talks about here. Because on the one hand, you know, this prophet is to be listened to, and the word of God is to be heard and respected, and that's what you listen to. On the other hand, we need to test it to make sure it is the word of God. How do you how does the hearer hold those two things in tension? Well, the hearer holds those things in tension. First off, because they should be taught that by the, the church and by by a pastor in his ministry. So I think the best example I've come up with is I've tried in the last few years to, to very intentionally in my elders meetings in one particular place to have a time of catechesis and study before we get to the business meeting. In fact, we made some commitments at our church. We said the meeting starts at seven. Pastor has to be done teaching by eight. The meeting has to be done by nine. And the only way we can uh, you know, exceed those is by everybody agreeing. But really, functionally, oftentimes we'll have more teaching in our elders meeting than business. Um, and one of the things I've been trying to, to say to them is we need to, I, I understand they respect the pastoral office. They would very much say whatever you say, pastor, as a, as a matter of deference. But I said, part of your role as the lay leadership of this congregation is to recognize if someone comes along later and isn't preaching what you know to be sound doctrine from the word of God. It could be me. I could I could hit my head and go wild and start teaching something that's not not God's truth and you would need to hold me to account. I would hope that wouldn't happen. It could be someone who comes later on down the line to seek to mislead for some reason. Uh, but to elevate uh, the understanding that the role of the, the laity is not just to sit and listen and nod, but it's to hear the word of God that comes from from the teaching and and preaching of the pastor and then examine it against his word it's it's the berean model that's, that's what i was thinking yeah yeah it, it acts the the bereans are are commended because they hear the word um but they don't just blindly accept it they search the scriptures and and then they come back from that search of the scriptures with joy seeing that the message that's brought um, is consistent with what God has always promised to do. Yeah, as, as you were talking, I was looking up Acts 17, verse 11 is the, I think, the key verse. The Jews in Berea were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. I mean, I think that that does say it very well. Receiving the word eagerly, in connection with the scriptures to see if it's true or not. This is this is the attitude of of any hearer of the word. And and a faithful pastor is going to do precisely what you said for his his lay people. Listen to what I say, compare it to the scriptures, and if you don't think it's true, if if you've got a question, ask me about it. And if I need to be corrected, I'm willing to be corrected. I mean that I think that's usually a sign of a faithful pastor. Right, right, absolutely. And there have been times, you know, when I've said something imprecisely in a sermon, somebody asked me about it and I said, I didn't even realize the phrase came out that way. Mm. You know, um, that that's not actually what I meant to say and I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, yeah, so very important, again, to, to both listen to the word of God eagerly and to examine the scriptures to see if these things are so. I, I wanna talk a little bit about what you also brought up about the, the final word of Moses here. You don't need to be afraid of, of these false prophets. It, I think you know it's, it's assuming in this case that the false prophet is bringing some kind of message of destruction. If you don't listen to this word that I'm speaking, then these bad things are going to happen. What is what is striking in the history of Israel is that generally speaking, when I think of the false prophets, they're the ones that are 
preaching good things are going to happen to you, even though you're being unfaithful. And the true prophets are those who are, are preaching, no, you're being unfaithful. And so judgment is going to come. It's, it, but in either case, the, the command here is do not be afraid. I, but I find it striking how it can work the other way too, where the false prophet might be telling you, don't worry about anything. And in fact, you do need to repent and, and be afraid of God's judgment. Yeah, fear is a great motivator, right? And I, I think yeah. those are the two tactics of, of a false prophet. The one is to play upon fear to get people to do what you personally want them to do for your own personal gain. The other is to preach to them something that they want to hear so that they will keep you around almost as a, a lucky rabbit's foot, so yeah. to speak. You know, this guy's on my team. He keeps telling me things are, are going to go my way uh, and I'm going to keep keep paying him to, to stay in God's good graces, so to speak, by being associated with him. But I, I, I think both of these things are operant today in the way that we see people being pulled down the path of some false preachers, false teachers, false prophets. Even there are some in our, our day who do claim to have prophetic insight into what's going to happen. Um, so let's talk about the fear factor sure, first. Go ahead. Um, the fear factor comes from, in my estimation, having read the many accounts of the Old Testament prophets who, without question, heard the word of the Lord, immediately responded in faith without without examining it like the Bereans, because it wasn't that wasn't what needed to be done at that point in time. And then someone comes into our life, especially when we're younger, I think, especially kids are susceptible to this, teenagers, those young in the faith, who speaks with a similar authority and a similar um, amount of um, certainty, mm. And we'll say, you know, this is what God says you need to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and as, a, as a good Christian, you say, well, I don't want to do what God doesn't want me to do. I'm going to listen and, and, and do whatever they, I've been told. It could be, uh, you young man need to go out and uh, save 10 other people by next week because that's how you're going to be judged faithful when the Lord's mm-hmm. coming back in his return. It could be, um, a lot of this gets wrapped up with this sort of uh dispensational premillennialism sure. stuff, which I think largely has, has passed from the uh, American spotlight. I, but, but that was very, uh, it was a very big thing when I was growing yes. up. Yes. Yeah. And, and I don't know if you remember at certain times, maybe you probably weren't susceptible to this or didn't hang out with too many people like this. But I remember there was a time where I was like, man, I, I, I don't know if I'm right here sure. because these people seem so certain and, and I'm not so certain I am. So you, you're moved by that fear. So I think that's very true that, the do not be afraid of them is a true comfort. Head back to what you know clearly from God's word, not to the things that seem to be um, minor points of, of detail. Do you ever see those charts, you know, that they'd put up on the wall, the dispensational premillennial? Yes, yeah. You know, it's like half a verse here in Daniel with right. this section of, of um, revelation tells us that this is exactly what's going to happen. Um, well, no, I mean, just the fact that that Christ speaks so clearly about his return in, in not necessarily comforting terms, but clear terms. Right. Let's me know. I don't need to be afraid that they're right. And I've got to That's do something right. their way in, in order to be saved. Yeah. Yeah. No, um, I, I'm, I'm right with you. And I think the connection to the last times particularly is where this do not be afraid provides a great comfort. And in, in fact, you know, when Jesus speaks, and I think it's in Luke where it's recorded and he's in that end times discourse, he even says, when you see these things start to happen, lift up your heads because you know your redemption is drawing near. So rather rather than being afraid because of what false prophets are saying, 
trust in Christ and you actually get to face that day with confidence. And it is, you know, I mean, I, like the Left Behind series mm-hmm. and I, I haven't watched any of the movie adaptations of it, but I, I imagine it's pretty scary when you watch it. You, you don't need to be afraid. And it is remarkable. It just amazes me that people still try to predict the return of Christ when he so clearly says you don't know the day or hour. No one does but the father. But there is a good example of a false prophet striking fear into your heart. And these words from Deuteronomy 18, no need to be afraid. Right, right, exactly. And I bet they're not that scary. They're probably cheesy. Probably, probably. Yeah, (laughs) you're probably right. So, okay, let's talk a little bit about, because we got about six minutes here. Let's talk a little bit about that case that we mentioned. What is being spoken of here is how to determine that this is not the word of the Lord. But there is the possibility, as we said, that a, a broken clock is right twice a day, that a false prophet might say something that is right. What do we, how do we discern? What do we do in a case like that? Do we want to go back to the 16th century? Take here? A, you've got a fantastic story here. Oh, I, think this, I think this is good. All right. Hear me out people. So back in uh, June, 1503, believe it or not, Christopher Columbus uh, beached his two last ships in Jamaica in June of 1503. And the people of the Island, the indigenous people there welcomed them, provided for them, traded with them, and over a, a amount of time, whatever Columbus had to trade in order for food and goods wasn't quite so enticing to the natives there any longer, and they decided they didn't want to continue to provide for Columbus and his men. So um, Columbus had to figure out what he's going to do here so that they don't all starve, and Columbus sort of pulled a fast one on the Jamaican natives Um, Columbus had a book with him that was a book of astronomical tables, which is, of course, important for navigation. And he could see that there was a date and time set by astronomical observation where there was going to be a lunar eclipse and a blood red moon. And scientifically, astronomically, he could predict when it was going to happen. So what Columbus did was he requested a meeting with the leader of the Jamaican natives and told him that God, his God, the European God, um, was angry with the local people's treatment of Columbus and his men, and that God was going to provide a clear sign of God's displeasure because he would cause the rising full moon to appear red and inflamed with wrath. And sure enough, March 1st, 1504, uh, according to schedule, this happened, the lunar eclipse and the red moon appear, and the indigenous people there are impressed that he could foretell such an amazing event but they were frightened because of course god had become their enemy in this in this sense and columbus's son writes down with great howling and lamentation they came running from every direction to the ships laden with provisions praying the admiral columbus to intercede by all means with god on their behalf that he might not visit his wrath upon them and columbus in goes into his cabin you know, supposedly to pray. Uh, instead, he's likely in there with an hourglass because he times out uh, 48 minutes because that is when the totality of the eclipse will end. And he walks back out and tells the frightened people that because of the offerings that they had brought to Columbus of food, that they were going to be forgiven by God and that God had pardoned them. Now, Columbus was right. Columbus was speaking, you know, presumably in the name of the triune God. He was right once, but he was manipulating these people. Um, is Columbus a prophet? Certainly not, according to this text. So 
what, what a strange story in history, but, sure. but hopefully an apt illustration of the way that someone can manipulate the word of God or God's name for their own personal gain. Right, right. And again, to, to go back to Deuteronomy 13, just because what someone says comes true, that's not the ultimate test. And, and here's an example of, of someone you know, manipulating both the word of God and scientific knowledge that's, that's observable for his own benefit. You can't always take the person's word for it. Compare it to the scriptures. Be like those Bereans. Got about two minutes here, Pastor Hill. Help us to wrap things up on this, as we've said, central text from Deuteronomy 18. Well, certainly the thing we should take away from this section of Deuteronomy is the clear prophecy of Christ that he will come in the same vein as Moses, but with a different message than Moses. Moses brings a message primarily of God's law and of the Old Covenant, Jesus certainly comes bearing a message primarily of grace. Um, of course, law and gospel are present in, in both. Um, but as he comes to us, he comes not as a mediator in the way that Moses was, where he's just a conduit for God's word, but he comes to us as God's word in human flesh, God himself in human flesh. So the presence of God is mediated in Jesus, um, but it's not lessened in any way. So as we have the opportunity to hear Jesus' word passed down to us faithfully through the the centuries and the gospels we are to listen to him and his word just as moses told us and just as the voice of god himself said on the top of the mount of transfiguration so in our day we shouldn't fall prey to all the false prophets false teachers around us even if they claim to speak in the name of the one true god uh, we need not be afraid of the message they bring if the message they bring is not true according to what the lord has made clear for us in his revelation through christ Pastor Nate Hill is pastor at St. Michael's Lutheran Church in Winchester, Texas, helping us today with Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 to 22. Pastor Hill, thanks for being our guest today. Thank you so much. The Bereans in Acts chapter 17, again, are described like these. They received the word with eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Listen to the word of God, dear Christians. Examine the scriptures to see if it is so. And when it is, rejoice that God has spoken to you through his son, Jesus Christ. Listen to him and receive his life. I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about Deuteronomy, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. We always love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.